0: Hello everyone, I'm Grace Curry, and welcome to this lecture, What is the Silmarillion? An Introduction to Tolkien's Mythology. The Silmarillion, Tolkien's oldest and favorite major work, which he attempted to publish in some form or other, first with The Hobbit in 1937, and again at the time of publishing The Lord of the Rings in the early 1950s, was a prequel to these works. Although the Silmarillion lacks hobbits, it features heroic, fierce, and at times treacherous elves and human heroes, all caught in the web of deceit, distrust, and war, stirred by a dark lord even more powerful than Sauron. Unlike his more famous books, Tolkien's Silmarillion, as described by Verlin Flieger in her book Interrupted Music, is symphonic in scope a huge yet unconcluded chronicle of history and epic and romance. In this lecture, we are going to briefly look at Tolkien's early life before discussing the mythology itself and its origins in the First World War. It will then look at the identity of the Silmarillion in italics versus the Silmarillion in quotation marks, The first referring to the 1977 publication, and the other referencing the wider textual corpus of alternate drafts and related materials composed between 1914 all the way up to Tolkien's death in 1973. The lecture will also cover the chronology of the various poetic and prose manuscripts that relate to the Silmarillion mythology as well as the publication dates of those materials in the History of Middle-Earth series. We'll also look at the editorial challenges that Tolkien's son and editor Christopher was dealing with, and how he managed to reproduce his father's manuscripts in a form that was not only coherent, but scholarly. First, a bit on Tolkien himself. John Ronald Rule Tolkien was born January 3, 1892, in Bloemfontein, South Africa, then the Orange Free State. His father, Arthur Tolkien, was a bank clerk and died of rheumatic fever when John Ronald was only four. His mother, Mabel Tolkien, née Suffield, moved John Ronald and his brother Hilary to England when John was two, but died from complications from diabetes when John was twelve. Tolkien's early education at King Edward's School in Birmingham fueled both strong friendships and stirred intellectual curiosity. The transient joy of the encouragement and inspiration of three close school friends, who dubbed themselves the Tea Club and Barovian Society, or TCBS, ended in tragedy when two of the three died in the First World War profound grief, and an imagination fueled by the myths and legends of the North—Old Norse, Old English, Finnish—led to the beginning of Tolkien's Legendarium, which he initially composed in various military hospitals, while recovering from trench fever, contracted while serving as a signaling officer on the Sum. This early mythology, the precursor to his more famous works, The Hobbit, 1937, and The Lord of the Rings, 1954-55, always remained the most important to Tolkien of all his literary creations. It was a lifelong and ultimately unfinished labor. In a 1955 letter, Tolkien looks back on his early desire to produce A body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story, the larger founded on the lesser, the lesser drawing splendor from the vast backcloths, which I could dedicate simply to England, to my country. These sentiments mirror a passage from E.M. Forster's 1910 novel Howard's End, Why has not England a great mythology? Our folklore has never advanced beyond daintiness. England still waits for the supreme moment of her literature, for the great poet who shall voice her." Looking back to the 1910s, Verlind Flieger observes that the imminence of war, with its implied destruction of existing culture, fueled, if it did not create, Tolkien's desire to give his country a mythology. Gergili Nagy notes that Tolkien's texts and the background mythological system they succeed in creating are essentially similar to real-world mythological corpora and the way they invoke their mythological system because of the basically similar relation of text to myth. Tolkien's myth, like so many others, begins with a cosmogony. In the Ainu Lindele, the supreme being and primary creator, Eru, or Aluvatar, composes music and directs the Ainur, quasi-angelic beings under Eru, to sing the world of Arda into existence. The creationary music is divided into three themes, the last of which relates to the making of the children of Iluvatar, elves, the firstborn, and men. The first conflict of any kind comes in the clash of the opposing themes of the Ainur. The first and main theme is sung to bring the universe and world of Arda into existence. Then the voices of the Ainur, like unto harps and lutes, and pipes and trumpets, and viols and organs, and like unto countless choirs singing with words, began to fashion the theme of Iluvatar to a great music, and a sound arose of endless interchanging melodies woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing into the depths and into the heights, and the places of the dwelling of Iluvatar were filled to overflowing, and the music, and the echo of the music, went out into the void. And it was not void. Melker, the most powerful of the Ainur, rebels against Iluvatar and the others by propounding his own dark, discordant musical theme, one that weaves discontent, war, and violence into the nobler themes of the others. The clashing musics of the Ainur loyal to Aru and those who attune their song to Melker's, leads to the mixture of beauty and wonder on the one hand, and woe, strife, and terror on the other, that play out in Arda. I am providing here two different versions of the music of Melker. The first is derived from the late text, but the second, taken from the earliest draft, is more detailed as to the nature of this theme. In the 1977 Silmarillion, Melker's music is characterized as loud and vain, and endlessly repeated. It had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as many trumpets braying upon a few notes, and it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice. The earliest description of Melker's theme was very topical, given that the earliest draft of the Cosmogony was composed in the immediate aftermath of the first world war it explains how through him meaning melker has pain and misery been made in the clashing of overwhelming musics and with confusion of sound of cruelty and ravening and darkness loathly mire and all putrescence of thought or thing foul mists and violent flame cold without mercy been born and death without hope. In his essay, Elu's Music, The Creation of Tolkien's Creation Myth, John Garth dates this text to the war years, around 1917, and observes an air of the some battlefields in the descriptions of Melker's theme. To elaborate on his observation, I've underlined several instances in this passage that evoke specific attributes of World War I battlefields. Loathly mire and putrescence recalls the mud and decay of soldiers and animals on the Western Front. Foul mists could be an oblique reference to poison gas. Violent flame evokes the effects of flamethrowers and exploding ordnance. The last description, referring to death without hope, is especially poignant as part of a work composed months after the deaths of two close friends on the sum, Robert Gilson and Jeffrey Beige Smith, former members of the TCBS from King Edward's School, who represented the earliest audience for Tolkien's mythological verse, or the proto-Silmarillion lyrics of 1914 through 1916. After initial struggles in the fledgling world between the violent, power-hungry Melkor and the other Valar, and the establishment of a divine island homeland in Valinor, the firstborn of the children of Iluvatar, the Elves, also called gnomes and fairies in earlier versions, awake on the shores of Middle-earth. Many follow the Valar to Valinor and become the greatest, wisest, and most powerful of the Elves, while others, remain in Middle-earth, called the Great Lands in Early Drafts. Later, the race of men awakens and fight alongside the elves in the later wars. The Silmarillion is essentially a history of the elves, although it features several prominent mortal heroes as well. Tolkien's elves are not the miniature twee inhabitants of the Farian worlds of Shakespeare, and of Victorian and Edwardian children's literature, but owe more to the magisterial Tuatha Danann of Irish myth, and the Light Elves of the Old Norse Eddas. The Silmarillion Elves are human in height, and are stronger and more beautiful than mortals. In the 1977 Silmarillion, they are divided into three main peoples, the Nolder, the most skilled and learned of the Elves, the Vanir, the fairest and wisest, and the Tulare, who were seafarers and shipbuilders. Much like the historical period in which Tolkien lived, with its two major world wars in the first half of the 20th century, Middle-earth also has two major cycles of conflict in its history. The War of the Jewels, in the First Age, the subject of the Silmarillion, and the War of the Ring in the Third Age, the subject of the Lord of the Rings. The origin of the First War came when the most skilled and learned among the Noldor, or Deep Elves, the smith Feanor, crafted three gems that contained the light of the two magical trees that lit Valinor. Melker's theft of these jewels and murder of Feanor's father, drives Feanor into a mad rage, and a disastrous oath. Feanor swears to pursue with vengeance and hatred to the ends of the world, vala, demon, elf, or man as yet unborn, or any creature great or small, good or evil, that time should bring forth unto the end of days, whoso should hold or take or keep a Silmaril from their possession. Feanor is joined in this oath by his seven sons, and afterwards leads along with his valiant half-brother Fengolfin, a large contingent of the Noldor to make an incursion against Melkor and his forces in Middle-earth. So begins the centuries-long conflict between the most powerful elves and their kingdoms, and Melker's armies of orcs, dragons, and balrogs, the latter creatures that have much in common with the fire giants of Norse mythology. In the midst of this war cycle and the related history are the three great tales centering on mortal heroes. The love story of the mortal baron who falls in love with the half-elf half-Meyar princess Luthien, the tragedy of the troubled anti-hero Turin Turambar, who kills the mightiest of Melkor's dragons in the manner of Sigurd the Volsung from Edic legend, and finally the account of Tur, whose fate becomes entwined with the doom of Gondolin, the most powerful of the three major elven kingdoms of Middle-earth, and the Camelot equivalent of Tolkien's mythology. So, from a textual standpoint, what is the Silmarillion? Those familiar with the work have most commonly only read the 1977 publication, which does not represent the totality of Tolkien's mythology, but is only one editorial compilation of a portion of the wider corpus composed over the course of two-thirds of Tolkien's life. Tolkien died in 1973 leaving his epic unfinished, and in the following years, his third son and literary executor, Christopher, assembled five key texts into a coherent narrative based on a number of earlier and later drafts. The result was an amalgam of the two cosmogonies, Ainulindale and Valaquenta, the 1950s late Quenta Silmarillion, which formed the central part of the heroic history of the First Age. Akebeleth, a later version of the fall of Numenor, the story of the Atlantis-like kingdom of mortal men that was destroyed by a great wave. And finally, the intermediary text of the Rings of Power and the Third Age that chronicles the events of the Second and Third Ages, forming a part of the immediate prehistory of The Lord of the Rings. Over the years, the Silmarillion has been regarded with some wariness. Was it a true authorial creation or an editorial composition that did not reflect the intent of the original author? The early concerns immediately after publication continued to be echoed many decades later. More recent assessments of the Silmarillion have characterized it as a collaborative effort between Tolkien and his third son, and as a mediated text. Douglas Cain, in his monograph Arda Reconstructed, which is dedicated to the detective work of how the 1977 Silmarillion was assembled, observes that the work pushes the limits of editorial intervention. And, among other things, Kane complains about reductions made from the source drafts. Anxieties over the extent of Christopher Tolkien's editorial intervention stirred critical debates over the canonicity of the 1977 publication. Verlyn Flieger feels that the 1977 text gives a misleading impression of coherence and finality, as if it were a definitive, canonical text, whereas the mass of material from which that volume was taken is a jumble of overlapping and often competing stories, annals, and lexicons. Despite such assertions, Alan Turner observes that the book stands as the canonical work, the standard against which all variations are measured, by virtue of its status as the first, And most unified form of the mythology. Niels Ivar Agoy goes as far as to say that for most readers, the 1977 Silmarillion is the standard authoritative source of information about the elder days. For a number of scholars, the shadow of the editor loomed large over this long-awaited yet controversial product which was only a small piece of Tolkien's life work on the project. In the introduction to the Book of Lost Tales, an earlier version of the mythology, Christopher Tolkien regretted, as he put it, leaving no suggestion of what it, the 1977 Silmarillion, is, and how, within the imagined world, it came to be. Christopher Tolkien responded directly to such concerns by publishing a few of the earlier drafts of individual stories in The Unfinished Tales, published in 1980 and shown here in the bottom right-hand corner. The rest appeared in the 12-volume History of Middle-earth series, over half of which was dedicated to Silmarillion material. David Bratman explains in his overview of the collection how the history in the title The History of Middle-earth refers to both the internal history of the secondary world of the legendarian and the external history of the author writing about it. It provides the reader with options to use the drafts either as a resource and encyclopedia or as a narrative. The title Silmarillion in quotation marks Is the scholarly designation for the textual variants preserved in these volumes, which trace the development of an unfinished opus. The Silmarillion corpus was composed in first intense and then sporadic fits over the course of sixty years. Tolkien began writing in earnest during the winter of 1916 and 17, although a collection of lyrics featuring figures or places from the mythology were composed as early as 1914, and some of these are preserved in the Book of Lost Tales. Elizabeth Whittington, in her book The Evolution of Tolkien's Mythology, identifies six stages of composition for the developing corpus, and the substrata of this complex textual tradition are preserved in the posthumously published volumes, edited from often paleographically difficult manuscripts. In his foreword to the 1977 Silmarillion, Christopher explains how the same legends came to be retold in longer and shorter forms, and in different styles. My father came to conceive of the Silmarillion as a compilation, a compendious narrative made long afterwards from sources of great diversity, poems and annals and oral tales, that had survived in age-long tradition. Christopher also describes this corpus as a vast repository and labyrinth of story, of poetry, of philosophy and of philology, with everything from forays into heroic verse in the ancient English alliterative meter to exercises in severe historical analysis of his own extremely difficult languages. Volumes 1 through 5 and 9 through 12 of The History of Middle-earth consist of verse and prose redactions in varied states of completion of Tolkien's mythology, spanning the 1910s and 20s and 30s, and later the 1950s and 1960s. Volumes 6 through 9 are predominantly concerned with alternate drafts of The Lord of the Rings, with the exception of one Silmarillion-related text, the Notion Club Papers which appears in Volume 9. The Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-earth, already briefly mentioned, while not part of the twelve-volume series, serves the same function as the Silmarillion-focused volumes of the History of Middle-earth. Two texts relate directly to the Silmarillion, the Tale of the Children of Huron, which is the longest prose account of the story of Turin also of Tour and his coming to Gondolin, a fragmentary later version of The Tale of the Fall of Gondolin. The Unfinished Tales also feature stories from the Second and Third Ages, covering materials pertaining to the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings. The introduction to the volume presents Christopher's earliest responses to critiques on his editorial practice. He explains how he produced the 1977 publication in order to be of the same order as the writings published by my father himself, a completed and cohesive entity rather than a complex of divergent texts interlinked by commentary. This last description characterizes the nature of the then forthcoming publications. The Book of Lost Tales, Volumes 1 and 2, composed between 1916 and 1920, is a collection of prose tales that represents a considerable but not yet complete account of the First Age legendarium. Tolkien's tales are organized within a semi-historicized frame narrative in which the mortal wanderer Ariel, or one who dreams alone, also called Angle, a name which, according to Tolkien's early notes, relates to the realm Angeln in southern Denmark, finds a hidden civilization of ancient fairies or elves on the island of Tall Arecia, originally conceived as ancient England. In a later reconceived frame narrative, Ariel is transformed into the Anglo-Saxon traveler Alfwina, whose name is Old English for elf friend. The inhabitants of a grand magical cottage on Tall Arecia recount stories of their glorious past before mortals dominated the world. This collection was never finished, trailing off with a variety of fragmentary tales, some of which appear in the next volume, along with outlines and notes. These two volumes represent what Elizabeth Whittington identifies as Tolkien's first of six stages of Silmarillion composition. The serialized format and framing story of the book of lost tales recalls the format of such classics as Chaucer's Canterbury tales Boccaccio's Decameron and more contemporary for Tolkien William Morris's 1868 romance Earthly Paradise a collection of tales told by a group of travelers gathered on an island the work was given as a gift by another officer while Tolkien was on the sum The Lost Tales contains all three of the great tales that would recur in verse and prose redactions throughout the Silmarillion corpus. The love story of the Elf, later Immortal, Beren, and Elf Princess Luthien, in the Tale of Tenuviel. The tragedy of the ill-fated mortal warrior Turin Turambar, in Turambar and the Foal The account of the fall of the renowned elven city of Gondolin in the Tale of the Fall of Gondolin, as well as early versions of the surrounding history. With the exception of the frame story, The Cottage of Lost Play, these three tales are also the oldest in the collection, all composed during or in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. There is arguably a case to be made for regarding the earliest mythological poems and prose drafts as war literature based on the time of their composition, especially the 1917 war-themed narrative The Tale of the Fall of Gondolin, which recounts the demise of the greatest of the elf city-states through treason and invasion. In his biographical study, Tolkien and the Great War, John Garth notes the kinship between the magical mechanical dragons assail the city walls, and the tanks that began to appear on the Western Front during the year Tolkien was composing his epic narrative. The earliest locales for Tolkien's composition of early languages, notes, and possible summaries were various military venues in England and France. In letters addressed to Christopher during his service in the Second World War, Tolkien explained, how he first began to write the history of the gnomes, meaning the Silmarillion or the Lost Tales, in army huts, crowded, filled with the noise of gramophones. In another letter from the same year, he outlined the various unlikely locations for jotting down the earliest concepts and excerpts for his developing history. These include grimy canteens, lectures, and cold fogs bell tents, and even some in dugouts under shell fire. He continues to reinforce these origins many years later, citing camps and hospitals between 1915 and 1918 as places of literary invention. His 1917 Tale of the Fall of Gondolin was a product of his medical leave, taken after the Battle of the Somme. After abandoning the Book of Lost Tales around 1920, Tolkien embarked on the lengthy project of developing what he called the vast backloss of his ancient history slash mythology. In the 1920s and 1930s, he alternately resorted to poetry and prose summaries. The Lays of Beleriand, Volume 3, represents, along with the next volume in the series, the second stage of Tolkien's work on the mythology. It contains two narrative poems, The Lay of Lathian, composed between 1925 and 1931, a verse version of The Story of Beren and Luthian, as first told in The Tale of Tenuvial, and The Lay of the Children of Huron, abandoned in 1925, The Story of Turin Turambar, told in verse, This volume also features shorter verse relating to the mythology, as listed here. And most of these are unfinished or fragmentary pieces. Volume 4, The Shaping of Middle-Earth, is a continuation of the second stage of the textual corpus and begins with prose fragments continuing the Book of Lost Tales. More significant are the two prose versions of the mythology which dispense with the mediator figure of Ariel and the frame narrative. The first, The Sketch of the Mythology, from 1926, is just that, a sketch or prose outline of the key events of the First Age in highly condensed form. It was originally intended to provide background for poetic recastings of the tale of Tenuvial and Turambar on the Foaloc, for assessment by Tolkien's former tutor from King Edward's school, Although the original intent was not to rewrite the Book of Lost Tales, this reformulation of the old legendarian material inspired a permanent restructuring based on its model. The sketch is followed by a longer, more formal prose text, the Quenta naldor from 1930, which expands considerably on its predecessor. Volume 4 also includes the earliest annals of Valinor, and the earliest Annals of Beleriand from the early 1930s, and both are formatted as chronicles, listing highly abbreviated accounts of historical events by date in the manner of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and other similar annalistic histories from the Middle Ages. Within Tolkien's world, these works were supposed to be histories composed by chroniclers living in either Valinor or Balerian. Volume 5, The Lost Road and Other Writings, is home to texts written during the composition of The Hobbit, and before the lengthy and all-consuming project of The Lord of the Rings, which very nearly suspended all activity relating to the early mythology for many years. This book features the first version of the Atlantis-influenced narrative The Fall of Numenor, from the 1930s, and the unfinished modern time travel story, The Lost Road, which formed a frame around another version of the Numenorean material. Additionally, there is a fourth prose version of Tolkien's mythology, the unfinished Quenta Silmarillion, from the mid to late 1930s, whose composition coincided with that of The Hobbit. And in fact, Tolkien unsuccessfully attempted to publish the incomplete Quenta Silmarillion, along with other related texts, in 1937. More Chronicle-style material is present from the late 1930s, along with the Ainu Lindale, the cosmological myth that was to function like a prologue in the 1977 Silmarillion, and replaced the earlier cosmogony found in the Book of Lost Tales, they are called The Music of the Ainur. The tenth and eleventh volumes of the series, Morgoth's Ring and The War of the Jewels, each include portions of the later Quenta Silmarillion, a rewrite of the 1930s text of the same name that Tolkien refurbished and expanded in stages, but left unfinished, this late version was the base text for the 1977 publication. Morgoth's Ring contains two phases of later Quenta material: Phase One from the early 1950s, and Phase Two from around 1958. It also preserves another version of the Ainulindale, the Annals of Ammon from the early 1950s, and some miscellaneous material relating to the mythology. The War of the Jewels, in addition to further later Quenta chapters, also features the Grey Annals from the late 1950s, which consisted of two closely related works, and was also used extensively in the 1977 Silmarillion. It also has The Wanderings of Huron, which follows the post-captivity exile of Turin Turambar's father, but was not included in the 1977 Silmarillion. The final volume in the series, The Peoples of Middle-Earth, contains Tolkien's latest writings, mainly from the 1960s, along with some from the last few months of his life. These include the remainder of the late Quenta texts, some linguistic essays, as listed here, a work purported to be by an elvish scribe chronicler of Gondolin, Pengaloth, who is also the attributed author of the Annals of Beleriand and co-author of the Annals of Ammon. It also features more incomplete stories. Christopher Tolkien passed away on January 16, 2020, and he leaves behind a remarkable legacy of dedicated editorial scholarship, without which readers and scholars would have a much more limited perspective of J.R. Tolkien's writings. During the last decade of his life, Christopher assembled textual variants of the three great tales of the mythology in order to enable those interested in the development of the narratives concerning Turin, Beren, Luthien, and Torr to have a clearer understanding of what was gained, lost, and modified over time in the different versions. While most of the texts provided had been previously published in the History of Middle-earth series, Christopher thought it best to produce volumes that allowed for comparative analysis of the development, in particular, of the Tales of Baron and Luthien and the Fall of Gondolin. The exception to the rule here is the Children of Huron, which only contains the longest prose version of that tale and omits the other poetic and prose versions. These three volumes provide a chance to experience the three great tales outside the context of the mythology, as in the manner of Old Norse sagas or medieval romances. HarperCollins will be releasing a new volume of unpublished material, The Nature of Middle-Earth, scheduled for release June 24, 2021. The forthcoming book is going to be based on photocopied materials sent by Christopher Tolkien before his passing to Tolkien linguist Karl Hostetter, and will reproduce Tolkien's essays on his Legendarium from the years 1959 through 1973 about the nature of Middle-earth, both in the metaphysical and natural historical senses. Some of these will relate to the Silmarillion and the Unfinished Tales and will be a useful resource to read alongside the wider Silmarillion corpus. Here I've listed the key texts for the Legendarium. If you are interested in reading the whole history, the best place to start is the 1977 Silmarillion. Anyone wishing to delve further could then read the rest of the versions in the order of production. The Book of Lost Tales, the first two volumes of the series, the sketch in The Shaping of Middle-earth, the two 1930s Quentas, the earlier one in The Shaping of Middle-earth and the slightly later one in The Lost Road, and finally the late Quenta, which is spread across Morgoth's Ring and the War of the Jewels. While the last work may seem redundant with the 1977 text, it does contain extended passages and bits of dialogue that were reduced or excised for the Silmarillion, and can be useful for textual comparison or character study. This is only a limited sampling of the secondary literature dealing with the Silmarillion mythology. The works listed here Are ones that deal with either the textual history or the creative development of the Legendarium. Verlund Flieger's book, Interrupted Music, traces not only the development of, but key literary influences on Tolkien's Legendarium, and is noteworthy for being one of a limited number of book-length literary studies exclusively dedicated to the Silmarillion. Worthy of special mention are the books by John Garth. His biographical study, Tolkien and the Great War, traces the earliest developments of the mythology during the First World War, and the impact of Tolkien's early school friends from the TCBS on his writing. Garth's other book, The Worlds of J.R.R. R. Tolkien, features illuminating details relating to the early mythology and its links with real locations in England and Europe. It has much to say about places that inspired character and place names in the Silmarillion Corpus, as well as in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And these are accompanied by beautiful illustrations and photographs. So how far did Tolkien succeed in his original goal of creating a native mythology? I'll leave you with some of the literary assessments featured in periodicals from around the world that were quoted on the back cover of the 2008 HarperCollins paperback edition of The Silmarillion. The Financial Times says that The Silmarillion at times rises to the greatness of true myth. The Toronto Globe and Mail calls it a grim, tragic, brooding, and beautiful book shot through with heroism and hope. Most tellingly, The Guardian asks, how, given little over half a century, did one man become the creative equivalent of a people? So it seems, at least in the view of one writer at The Guardian, Tolkien achieved his early goal of creating a mythology for his own country. The cover shown here is not the 2008 edition but another showing Ted Nasmith's beautiful portrayal of Magler, the last surviving son of Feanor, who, after briefly recapturing one of the Silmarils, casts it away into the sea, as his moral failings have now made him unworthy of the holy jewels made by his own father. I hope this lecture has intrigued you enough to pursue Tolkien's earliest literary creations. Which are striking counterparts to his more famous works and are well deserving of both scholarly attention and general interest. The collective corpus is more than a mere ancient backdrop to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It is of great literary value in its own right and has been gaining greater recognition over the past few decades. Thanks to Christopher Tolkien's tireless and dedicated scholarship, the Silmarillion corpus will continue to provide a more expansive view of Tolkien's imagination and inspirations. Thank you all for listening.